Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Thank you all for being here for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Lots to talk about again today as we come toward the very end of 2020. Uh, But political news still hotter than ever in this election year. So we're going to get right to the panel and begin our conversation. It's Wednesday, which means that the AJC political reporter Greg Bluestein is my partner on the show today. Uh, Greg Bluestein, you're... I don't know how you still have the energy to talk. You told us you've been you were up at eleven thirty last night doing MSNBC. You were back doing them at seven o'clock this morning. Um, you're you're the star of the election, Bluestein. No, I'm not. But it is it is a great time to be involved in Georgia politics because we'll talk about it later. But because because of the epic day and epic weekend we're going to have here right before the runoffs. Yeah. Yeah, it is certainly true. And and in fact, that's a great way for me to kind of introduce the rest of the panel to point out that if anybody had any questions about how important Georgia is in this final days of this year and into the first week of next year, all you have to do is look at the fact that not only is Donald Trump uh, going to be here campaigning for Leffler and Purdue on uh, next Monday, the day before the final day of voting. But we've now learned through Greg Bluestein that uh, President-elect Biden will be here on Monday and his vice president, uh, Kamala Harris, will be in Savannah on Sunday. So with all that said, uh, there's a lot happening, and we're glad to welcome to talk about it with Bluestein, uh, Representative Chuck F. Stration from Gwinnett County. He's a Republican representative. Chuck, I think I have said on this show on a number of occasions that I, I think we all get right now, given the kind of convulsions the Georgia Republican Party is dealing with, it's not easy to be a Republican on this show, and we're always grateful that you are willing to come on and talk with us. Thanks for being here, Chuck. Bill, it's always uh, great to be with you, and thanks for having me, and great to be on with such an outstanding panel today. Um, we also are uh, talking today to uh, the mayor of East Point, uh, Dina Holiday Ingram, who uh, we're very happy to have back on the show. Mayor Ingram, um, you know, I want to mention one thing about you that I don't think we've ever pointed out on the show before. Among the many things you're doing in East Point, I think you uh, push through in your first term a livable wage for city employees, among other things. You have also been throughout your career um, a real champion for children's issues. And, and I think that's worth our at least mentioning to our, our listeners. Yes? Yes. Um, good morning. Thanks again for inviting me to join you this morning. You know, I truly believe, and it's not just a cliche, that our children are our future and that we have a duty. Um, there are a lot of kids who are born into some great circumstances and some who might not be born into so great circumstances. But we have a duty and an obligation that once they're here, to make sure that we're bridging the gaps and providing supports and resources to help them be successful. Um, because, you know, I, we, we definitely need to make sure that our future is better than what it is now and that we are investing in that. And so, yes, I am totally committed to children and youth issues and both professionally and politically have made sure that my work is aligned to help ensure that they have 
all that they need, bridge the gaps and connect them to resources to be successful. Well, I, I'll make a deal with you. Uh, once we get this runoff election in the rearview mirror and have an opportunity to open up our conversations more broadly, we'll, we'll do a show in which we'll talk about some of the issues uh, with young people, uh, particularly in Georgia, that matter most to you. I, so let's look down the road to doing something like that. Um, that right. would be awesome. Greg Bluestein. Okay. Greg Bluestein, uh, let's uh, get to a story that uh, you published online, uh, I think, early this morning. We now know that President-elect Biden will be here on Monday, Kamala Harris the day before on Sunday in Savannah. And as I said a little while ago, uh, the president will be here on Monday as well. First of all, we know now President Trump is going to be up in the Dalton in Dalton for a rally, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Northwest Georgia. And, and our understanding is that a lot of that is based on the fact that um, – Clearly, that's rich territory for Republicans, but early voting shows that uh, that the 14th district Republican voters have underperformed up there so far. Yes. Yeah, they're the, that, that's the district that, at least according to yesterday, I haven't seen today's analysis, but yet by, as of yesterday was the lowest performing district in terms of turnout in the entire state. Bad news, obviously, for Republicans, especially at a time when we're looking at the fact that African-American voters so far seem to be overperforming by at least a little bit in the early and absentee voting, Greg. Yeah, and that's why this, this, this Monday's visits are going to be so important to both parties, but particularly for Republicans, because they are relying on huge Election Day turnout. Democrats clearly have an advantage. We're not sure how big that advantage is, but they've clearly built an advantage in terms of early voting so far. They've built themselves a cushion. The Republicans are going to need, to, need giant Election Day turnout to overcome that, that Democratic edge. And that's why President Trump's messaging in northwest Georgia on Monday is so important because that is one of the most conservative areas in the state, and Republicans are banking on enormous turnout there to wipe out that Democratic lead. Um, do we know yet any of the t- details of the Biden visit, or is it just that he's going to be somewhere in metro Atlanta? Yeah, I'm trying to figure out more of the specifics right now. The campaign only said he'll be in metro Atlanta. Um, I was given I was it was suggested to me that the events will, will not be at the same exact time. So there won't be some sort of split screen made for TV moment of Biden on one side and President Trump on the other, which would make quite the spectacle. But um, still, the fact that you've got competing, uh, a clash of competing Election Day events on the, uh, on the eve of primary, I shouldn't say Election Day, but uh, primary eve events, um, the day before runoffs that will shape Biden's presidency kind of says it all. It's a climactic moment in this campaign. Chuck Evstration, when you look at early voting uh, totals, when you look at the demographic breakdowns, when you hear uh, a conversation about the fact that right now African-American voters are overperforming some Republican areas of the state, not doing as well, what do you read anything into the tea leaves at this point? Georgia is clearly in the national focus right now, and I think Georgians are very aware of the election uh, that's underway. I mean, you can't watch TV without seeing multiple ads for uh, the Senate candidates, and I think that uh, turnout is ultimately going to be very high. But certainly these campaigns are banking on and focusing on encouraging turnout of the base and getting uh, folks to turn out and vote, and that that is the calculation with which they can win uh, ultimately in January. Um, 
But Mayor Ingram, uh, we know that uh, in the November 3rd election, President Trump uh, certainly was able to, uh, you know, early on, uh, uh, because of Election Day votes, roll up totals that, that looked like he might have a chance to win the state. But those absentee ballots, the mail-in ballots, uh, started coming in, and the tide turned and gave Biden the 12,000-vote approximately margin that led to his uh, victory. Um, are, are you thinking that we might see a repeat of that same kind of situation on uh, on runoff day? I, I think we will. I mean, this election will definitely be close, um, and it's going to come down to literally every vote being counted. Um, the good news and the, the, the bright spot is that turnout has broken records, right? Over 2.5 million early votes have been cast. Um, and today is the last day of early voting. Um, I looked at our East Point Library numbers um, as of December 27th. We'd already had 6,050. Um, and I'm sure the numbers are going to continue to come in. And so I do think it's going to, you know, be another nail biter, right? Um, but I, I do feel like um, from a Democratic perspective, there, that win um, on no, November 3rd is actually surging and making people believe again that the people have the power and the, understand the power of their vote and making sure that they cast it. And so that's why I think we're seeing record turnout. All right. I, so I don't want to I, I don't I don't want to, you know, uh, uh, pour water on your on your unhopefulness about Democrats. <laughs> but, Greg, is it fair to suggest to suggest that history tells us that a runoff election, even under these circumstances, are the Republicans to lose. I mean, history does tell us that. Republicans won every statewide runoff election in Georgia history. And for, for two main reasons, um, one is that, well, three main reasons. Democrats have, never, have not won a statewide race since 2006, period. Um, so Republicans have that going for them. But secondly, and thirdly, younger voters and African-American voters tend not to show up in the same numbers for, for runoff elector, elections as they do for general elections, uh, meaning that the electorate is, tends to be older and whiter, which plays into Republicans' favor. But in this case, you've got a 33-year-old candidate who is appealing to younger voters, John Ossoff, and you've got the pastor of Martin Luther King Jr.'s historic pulpit, Reverend Warnock, running – Democrats think they've got the combination to drive out more African-American and younger voters in a way that past Democratic runoff contenders just weren't able to do. And, and, and Mayor, we do see, again, we do th see that um, uh, black voters look like they are energized in a way they have not been, perhaps, in past runoff elections based on early voting totals. Absolutely. I think the November 3rd election went against all trends, right? So the trend... Democrats had not won statewide in Georgia, I think, since President Carter um, in 92. And so this election cycle, I think, is a record-setting, um, new trend-setting type cycle. And while, yes, um, there's this sentiment and there has been this practice of, you know, younger voters and, and African Americans not coming back out, I think we're going to see another trend broken um, on January 5th. Well, I'll just jump in. I think the uh, important thing to consider is the November 3rd results, which were Senator Perdue won more votes uh, than any other candidate. And in my view, libertarian uh, votes tend to go Republican in a runoff. And so that's an additional boost 
As far as Reverend Warnock, his uh, numbers in the November 3rd election, despite real support from the Democratic Party, uh, he did not uh, outperform as, as you might have otherwise expected. So I think that what's important to consider is Republicans uh, down ballot did very well in Georgia in November of this year. And uh, there isn't a, a reason to expect anything different in the runoff, in my view. And that's why I expect uh, Senator Perdue and, and Lef- Senator Leffler uh, will, do, will do well in the runoff. And, and Greg, I think all of this brought together uh, leads to one interesting observation. Georgia, as uh, we've talked about on the show, and Mayor Ingram just referred to it, had not elected a Democratic presidential candidate since Bill Clinton in 1992. Joe Biden wins in this election cycle. And yet, Greg, we are still waiting to learn, given what Chuck Evstration said about down-ballot elections on November 3rd, uh, whether Georgia really is uh, becoming a blue state or it remains on the edge of between red and purple yes yeah the precipice uh, the battleground precipice because we're certainly a battleground state uh, but january 5th will determine whether or not uh, georgia is 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 a is a more solidly blue state because 12,000 or so votes is what separated biden and trump and every indication i'm getting from the campaigns including this morning you know, everyone's reading the tea leaves of this early voting thing it looked like yesterday was a little bit better for Republicans um, than certainly than the day before yesterday when it comes to early voting. But everything, every read I'm getting is that this, this, these races next week are basically a coin flip. All right. Um, let's turn to an, another story, election-related story, Greg. Um, we know that the uh, Secretary of State, that Brad Raffensperger, uh, gave in to um, an urging, let's put it that way, by uh, state officials, by the governor and and other elected officials uh, out there, to do an audit of absentee ballot signatures. He wasn't going to do a statewide audit, so he decided to do a sample in Cobb County where they took 15,000 uh, absentee ballot envelopes, brought in a team of law enforcement and uh, election officials to scrutinize those signatures on the envelopes against the registration signatures to find out if the Trump campaigns and some Republicans in the state's concerns that there was a lot of fraud in absentee balloting might be true. What did they find out, Greg? Well, the lead here is they didn't find a single fraudulent absentee ballot during that audit of of more than 15,000 signatures. There were 10 ballots that had been accepted, but voter signatures didn't match or signatures were missing. Uh, But then agents from the GBI and investigators with the Raffensperger's office contacted those voters and confirmed that each of them had submitted those ballots. Uh, There was one case where a voter's wife signed her husband's ballot envelope and another voter signed the front of the envelope instead of the back. But you've, you've got no, no instances of actual voter fraud or, or any sort of uh, evidence of any irregularities that would have changed the outcome of the race. Yeah, and Raffensperger actually said that this was the one area where the Trump uh, supporters had the potential for a legitimate challenge of the vote, separating them from the conspiracy theories that Raffensperger has had to fend off uh, for a long time now. Um, so... 
Chuck Efstration, I said when I introduced you that these days it is a little more difficult to be a Republican on Political Rewind. Um, is it time for Georgia Republicans to accept the fact that Joe Biden won Georgia? There have been two recounts of the votes here statewide. Uh, we've now seen a sampling of absentee signatures and found no fraud. Is it time for your fellow Republicans to just say Joe Biden will be the next president and we've got to stop all this talk about fraud and conspiracies? Well, as I've said before on your show, I think it's important that we reassure Georgians that the election process is fair, that votes are counted, um, that legal votes are uh, counted appropriately. And this audit has helped to reassure Georgians, I believe, who had questions about the election. I've received countless emails, certainly seen comments on social media over the past few weeks and just many, many questions about this. And when you have expert investigators from the GBI and other law enforcement agencies who can review these signatures, uh, can then reassure the public uh, that there is not fraud taking place. In addition, there's been no one, to my knowledge, who's come forward and said, I didn't vote, but I'm on the rolls as having voted. And so, uh, so to just address any concern that might be out there, I think that that's a good thing. And, uh, and I believe that uh, allowing the process to work itself out has been a very good thing uh, for, for our state. Mayor Ingram? Yeah, while, while I, I agree with um, Representative Estrison that, um, you know, maybe this has helped assure some other voters um, of the integrity of the election, I am extremely hopeful that this is it. Um, enough is enough. Um, I, I think it's been a waste of taxpayers' dollars um, to prove what we've all known. But, you know, now there's evidence and there's proof of that. Um, but the reality of it is, is that, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic and people need housing assistance. The eviction um, crisis, the bubble is about to burst. It is looming. Um, people need food assistance. Small businesses need assistance. We need to make sure that there's health care and that we're getting through and focusing on this pandemic. And we need to be using our time, talents, resources, money and every other resource that we can to focus on the people and put people over politics and party at this point. Enough is enough. It is absolutely time that we move forward and focus on the people in this state, in this country. And look, it's become also clear that short of overturning the election results, nothing will be enough for President Trump and some of his supporters. Uh, so even this audit isn't going to do what Raffensburg hoped it would, which is restore confidence throughout throughout the nation in Georgia's election system. Um, even last night, the president was tweeting about why, why Fulton County was, wasn't picked for this audit, why it was Cobb County. Um, so there's, there's a lot of moving of the goalpost here, but this speaks to the concern I keep on hearing from Republicans on the ground in Georgia, which is the focus on November's election distracts from January's election, where so much is at stake. And of course, there's a, there's a big concern that the same sort of election drama we faced weeks now after November it's just a taste of what's to come after the January 5th runoff. Yeah, Chuck, I think you would be in agreement with Greg that uh, this is a distraction from making sure Republicans uh, get out the vote for Leffler and Purdue. It's incredibly important that Republicans are focused on turning out in January for Senators Leffler and Purdue. The um, uh, ability to have a, uh, a Congress that can thoroughly consider any legislative proposals put forward by President Biden and uh, passed by a Democrat-led House is going to be very, very 
uh, important. And so this uh, this election is critical for our state um, and for our country. And Republicans, I think, should be focused on the runoff um, on January 5th. So even with all that said, uh, even with the report now from the Secretary of State's office about the Cobb County uh, absentee ballot signatures, today at the state capitol, the Senate Election Law Subcommittee is going to reconvene under the chairmanship of of State Senator uh, William Ligon, of course, a Republican from down in Brunswick. And here's what they're going to do, they, they say. Uh, Ligon says, we will hear testimony uh, and the committee will look at a report that Ligon drew up and submitted for information, informational purposes to be a part of the record at the request of the judiciary chair. In an earlier subcommittee meeting, the uh, they heard evidence, according to Ligon, that proper protocols were not used to ensure a chain of custody of the ballot throughout the election. Uh, that it was possible or even likely that large numbers of fraudulent ballots were introduced into the pool of ballots that were counted as votes. Ligon cites as evidence what he calls wildly disparate vote totals from the recount, which to the best of my knowledge, Greg, I didn't, there were no wildly disparate uh, numbers. The Secretary of State was, was particularly pleased with how close the the first recount and the second came to the original uh, numbers. He cites mm-hmm. uh, the fact that State Farm Arena, he goes through the uh, what we've heard before, the story that, in fact, some Republican poll, uh, watchers were uh, left thinking that they, the counting was uh, over with for the night. The count continued through apparently a mistake in communication. Uh, and he suggests that if a majority of the General Assembly concurs with the findings of the report, which they'll talk about again today, the certification of the election should be rescinded and the General Assembly should act to determine that the proper electors, meaning Trump electors, uh, go uh, vote on January 6th. Greg, what do we make of all this? I mean, a couple things. Uh, first, it, it's 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 made, aimed at discrediting obviously President-elect Biden, his entire administration. Secondly, um, it's also setting the stage to discredit uh, the Democrats if they end up winning next week's runoff. Um, it, it allows Republicans to continue to point to these, or some Republicans, I should say, to continue to point to to these false claims of widespread uh, voter fraud uh, in order to discredit their victories if they win. And thirdly, it sets the stage entirely for a giant debate in the legislature in just a few weeks over restrictions on voting, whether or not there should be um, uh, new absentee ballot restrictions, voter ID, and an end to at-will absentee ballot in Georgia, which I've heard different accounts. I've heard some, some people say that, that that legislation won't go anywhere. Some Republicans have suggested that to me, and others say that it will be the defining fight of the General Assembly. Chuck Evstration, I, I mean, you're obviously aware that that um, there will be a, a bill introduced. Secretary of State wants to bring it forward, although he's not exactly the most popular guy among Republicans <laughs> in the Georgia General Assembly, uh, to do away with no excuse absentee voting. Have you had a chance to look at that issue yet? And do you have any sense of where you stand on whether we should allow no excuse absentee voting? It may be too early to put that question to you. 
I think the General Assembly is right now holding hearings, the House and Senate are holding hearings about the election process, and it's really in the information gathering stage right now, just taking in uh, testimony and information that would be important if there's an elections bill going forward. I'm not planning to carry a bill like that, so I can't really speak to the specifics of the issue, but uh, as is important to do before the legislature uh, convenes, we have to really take a look at a hard look at issues and whether or not legislation is necessary, and if so, what uh, what that should look like. Mayor Ingram, before we get to a break, I think Greg Bluestein just said something uh, ter- terribly important. Um, the Biden administration will go into office on January 20th with a huge cloud hanging over its head for many millions of Americans, um, and certainly many of them right here in the state of Georgia. How difficult do you think this is going to make it for a President Biden to conduct uh, his business and be seen as a legitimate leader of the country? I think um, President Biden's, President-elect Biden's um, leadership as vice president and his leadership that he's showing during the transition shows that it is not going to be difficult. He won't be distracted. He will continue to focus on the people. All of this, um, I believe, is just smoke and mirrors. It's interesting in a country where we're supposed to be government of the people, for the people, by the people, when you have an election that has a record historic turnout. Um, And even in the state of Georgia, we now want to change the rules of the game because more people have voted and more people turned out to to vote. And so, you know, I I think it is our democracy is at stake. This is not a Republican or a Democrat issue. It is an American issue. Our democracy is at stake. And I think leaders at the local, state, federal level, elected officials are going to have to stand up for our democracy and realize it is not about party. It is not about Democrats or Republicans. It's about Americans and our system of democracy in our country and sustaining that and not letting it erode and totally be destroyed because of the preference of one person who's on their way out the White House. You know what? Before we get to the break, Chuck F. Stration, what we're talking about now just makes me think about something that relates to you very specifically. You took a very bold step Uh, session before last to become the Republican leader in in sponsoring hate crimes legislation, which Democrats have been trying to pass in the General Assembly for literally decades, and that had been blocked uh, often by Republicans who had problems with various people who were going to be or not uh, included in protections. You showed an ability and a willingness to work across party lines and to take up issues that some of your colleagues we're uh, not happy with necessarily. So how do you, do you see your uh, ability to work that way as being important? Many of your colleagues on the Republican side of the aisle still have not declared that they accept that Joe Biden is going to be the next president of the United States. Do you have a role to play in helping that uh, uh, change? Well, we, we're all Americans. We uh, care about this country, and uh, that's above partisanship. But I will say part of the legislative success that uh, that you're talking about is a willingness to build coalitions and to not necessarily follow the direction of the extremes of a political party. And I think that actually uh, President-elect Biden is being pulled to the extremes 
of his party that did not fare very well on Election Day in November. And so I think that uh, that is important for both political parties to consider going forward to really work uh, to uh, to make results that matter uh, to the people of this country and um, to lead effectively. Uh, and uh, and I expect that all elected officials ultimately know that and uh, and uh, always hope. I think we all always hope that folks uh, want to follow through with that and and, uh, and adhere to that calling. All right, I got to get to a break. It's interesting. Chuck Efstration just led us perfectly to what I'd like to talk about when we come back. Uh, he just introduced the theme of a, he didn't use the words, but this suggestion that perhaps Democrats have a radical agenda under President Biden. And it's one of the reasons that Efstration hopes, of course, that voters elect Leffler and Purdue to block that. So let's talk about where the Senate runoff stands when we come back from this break. This is Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. East Point Mayor Dina Holiday Ingram, Gwinnett County Representative Chuck F. Stration, and the AJC's Greg Bluestein join me today for Political Rewind. Uh, Greg, uh, President Trump uh, put a lot of Republicans, but most particularly Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue, in a tight spot when he uh, demanded that the uh, Congress return with a COVID relief bill uh, under threat of veto if they don't increase the checks that will go out to many Americans from $600 to $2,000. We now know, Leffler and Purdue have now announced they will support those $2,000 checks, but there are many Republicans in the Senate, fiscal conservatives, who think that's a terrible mistake. And by the way, I want to point out that both the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post, kind of strange bedfellows, both editorialized today against increasing the payout from $600 to $2,000. That's another matter. But what, what position does this put Leffler and Purdue in in terms of agreeing with Trump? Yeah, I mean, complicated is an understatement here, right? Uh, for, for the last, <laughs> the last week, they were silent about whether or not they backed uh, the, the president's call for $2,000 direct stimulus checks. Senator Leffler told me something, you know, that she would shoot back it if wasteful spending was cut, but that wasn't part of the whole debate here. Um, but look, it forced them to, to find common cause, not just for the president, who they can't afford to alienate now, but also their Democratic rivals. <laughs> so they had to go out there and say they agreed with John Ossoff and Reverend Warnock, who not just for the last week, but for really the last few months, have been, have been hammering them over their refusal to, to come out and endorse $2,000 direct stimulus checks. Um, so, Mayor Ingram, it is interesting, as Bluestein points out, that this does put Leffler and Purdue in uh, the same camp as many Democrats. I would imagine, I don't, I'm speculating, but I would think you're probably more in favor of a, a larger payout than a smaller payout for many of your constituents, yes? Absolutely, I'm in favor of a larger payout for people 
in this country, in my city, in the state, and in this country. You know, I find it interesting that we get into these heated debates and we talk about spending and there might not be enough money when we talk about getting resources directly to the American people. Um, whether $2,000, you know, is still not the corporate bailout that we provide to corporations and spend millions and billions and allocate money like it's nothing when it comes to corporate interests. But when it comes to the interests of the people and the survival of our people and making sure that people have what they need, then that becomes either radical or all of these other type things that they put labels on to make it seem like it is something bad. It is never bad to prioritize the people in this country and put people over politics, uh, profit, and party. And, you know, just because someone now conveniently says that they support $2,000 checks, I mean, what what else are you going to say, right? Um, The reality of it is, will it pass and will they do everything that they can do to ensure that it passes um, versus the fact that right now we still haven't received an increase because of the politics being played in, in, in the Senate? Well, well I think Trump, let, me, let me add. Go ahead. Go ahead, Chuck. I, th- I think it's interesting that both Democrats and Republicans are questioning this increase right now. Professor Lawrence Summers, who was Treasury Secretary in the Clinton administration, called the increase to $2,000 a serious mistake that would risk a temporary overheating of the economy. And he thought the money might be better spent fighting the pandemic in other ways. And so Americans throughout the country, country and certainly small businesses in our community, they are really hurting right now. And any proposal that's considered by the Congress should be carefully reviewed to determine if it truly impacts and will affect uh, the issues that are facing the country. Uh, deficit spending like this, after all, is uh, taking a loan from our children and grandchildren, and we have to make sure that the money is spent in the most effective way possible. Uh, that That's the responsibility of the Congress. So. I do think that it's a very interesting issue with uh, that was really the hallmark of Senator Bernie Sanders uh, on the extreme of the Democratic Party, which uh, which I know uh, candidate Ossoff uh, has certainly embraced uh, Senator Sanders' support in his campaign, and so I think this is very relevant uh, as we as we uh, are in the Senate um, runoff right now to consider when the extremes of each party um, are pushing a proposal, should it be uh, more carefully reviewed? Should additional time um, uh, be given to consider it? So maybe you put me in that uh, fiscal conservative uh, wing of the party, uh, Bill, you were talking about earlier. Okay, but but Chuck, okay, so this is what I mean, why I think it's difficult to be a Republican these days. Uh, Yes, Bernie Sanders is pushing that that, uh, higher amount, um, but now so are Leffler and Purdue, and and so are, are are they in the same camp with Ossoff, Warnock, and Bernie Sanders on this? And will is there a political calculus that you think may have an impact on Republicans thinking about whether they should turn out to the polls to vote for uh, Leffler and Purdue, or are there some undecided voters who might be more willing to vote for him because of this? President Trump indicated his support for this, and this was a proposal that. I had been uh, rejected as part of the carefully drawn negotiation that was in Congress, I understand, from the media, from the media reports. And so I think that our uh, elected officials are now in a position of reviewing legislation that comes to the floor for consideration. And uh, I know that Senator, Senators Purdue and Leffler carefully review this legislation. They understand how Americans and Georgians are hurting right now in the pandemic, and uh, they want to do what they can to support them. But um, uh 
simply uh, well, Speaker Pelosi calling this legislation for a vote in some ways uh, just immediately after the Christmas holiday in some ways um, to uh, to put a proposal out there just because of what had occurred in the media without complete vetting. I think we should be cautious of that when extremes and political parties are pushing um, certain issues. Uh, we all should ha- should have some caution, and, and we should really look at whether or not uh, that measure should be vetted. Frankly, that's why it's so important that uh, Republicans retain control of the U.S. Senate so that measures can be uh, carefully vetted, that the extreme of the Democratic Party isn't able to ram their agenda through without uh, hearing from um, those with different opinions. Yeah, and what, what Representative Strishan couldn't say, but I can, is that the president's putting the senators in this terrible bind. Um, they can't afford to do anything to tick him off, to ostracize him, to alienate him at all, especially with him coming on Monday uh, for what will be his last campaign rally as president, um, because they need his loyal support. They need his, the support of his, of his diehard devotees. And I think probably in Senator Purdue's heart of hearts, I mean, look, he ran as a deficit hawk in 2014. That was his main campaign issue. This is not someone who has been looking to add, um, you know, trillions to, to the nation's deficit at all, or billions, trillions. Um, so that's why he, is, he has been on the record opposing uh, more generous stimulus checks as, as recently as over the summer. Uh, but he also, you know, looked at the realities and, and, Doing anything to, to ostracize Trump right now um, could mean risking a surge of turnout on Election Day when they need it the most. Yeah, so I, I think it's interesting to, again, call extremes or refer to things as extreme when we're talking about the American people. Um, there are people, a lot of people in this country, in my city, in this state, who have over or over two thousand dollars behind on rent mortgage or utilities and so this assistance will help but again i don't hear people calling the the huge tax breaks that corporations get extreme i don't hear people calling the fact that in the first round of coronavirus cares act funding there was a billion like millions and billions of dollars of bailout to corporations and nobody had a problem with that and money didn't even flow directly to cities to be able to help support um, and provide, continue to provide the services and meet the needs of the residents within our community. We pivoted and have been providing over 2.5 million pounds of food to people in our city because they need it. We, we're now going to be providing rental and mortgage assistance to our residents because they need it. And so I, I think these words like radical and extreme, when we start talking about issues as they relate to people and helping the people of this country, for me, oftentimes, this is really just a distraction. The reality of it is, is this work at these levels should not be that hard if we really are listening to and responding to the needs of the people. And if we can't do that during a pandemic, when, you know, we've had the, the death rate in this country from the pandemic is, is ridiculous. Um, the number of people that are infected is ridiculous. And if we don't start focusing and shifting our conversations about meeting the needs of people, that is going to continue. And so I think President-elect Biden has shown himself to be a centrist um, and has been able to work across across the aisle and is going to continue to do that um, as he leads this country and builds back better. 
Okay. Um, thank you uh, to everyone for your observations. Uh, uh, we got to get to another break in a minute, uh, but two points first. Number one, a lot of this may be just a moot point because we know that uh, Majority Leader McConnell uh, doesn't have any intention, certainly, of taking up just the $2,000 increase by itself. He's packaged it with the other measures that President Trump said he had a deal with McConnell that allowed him to sign the bill over, and that's oversight of, uh, of uh, uh, social media organizations like uh, Facebook and Twitter or whatever, uh, and, um, and also a federal study of election fraud. Uh, and McConnell is creating a poison pill situation that will probably prevent this from ever getting very far. But as we take a break, one other important note that we're just seeing right now, uh, Sam Burmistaz just uh, sent me a note saying that within the last 20 minutes, here's a tweet from President Trump. Hearing from Atlanta on the Georgia election overturn now being broadcast, check it out. Not quite sure. It's on. He's talking about One America's Network, something they're doing. Brian Kemp should resign from office. He is an obstructionist who refuses to admit we won Georgia, in all caps, BIG, also won the other swing states. Well, there's a little tweet to make your morning, Chuck F. Strachan. <laughs> We're going to get to another break. We'll be back in a minute. Chuck Abstration, uh, the journalist, political journalist belief that it is never too soon to start talking about the next election, even as the current election is coming to a close. Uh, when you think about it, this tweet from the president, another attack on Brian Kemp. I mean, are we going to be covering the story over the next year and a half to two years about the primarying of Brian Kemp by a Doug Collins or some other uh, ambitious Republican? I think that right now we're in the national focus with this Senate runoff and control of the of the U.S. Senate up and up for grabs uh, based upon Georgia and that there's a real heightened interest in day to day what's going on, and what's taking place. But I've known Governor Kemp for a long time. I know that he's a good man, that he works hard to uh, do what's right and to follow the law in our state. And I think that uh, there's going to be an opportunity to thoroughly consider uh, his record and his accomplishments when it's time for uh, for the election in two years. And um, and I expect that uh, Rep Georgia Republicans uh, will see it the same way. OK, fair enough. We're going to watch that closely, obviously. Greg Bluestein, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I'd love to get your take on it at least. We've obviously paid a lot of attention since November 3rd to both Brad Raffensperger and Gabe Sterling, the manager and the overseer of, of the actual election process itself. Uh, it was kind of stunning, I think, for many people to learn in, in the AJC the other day that Gabe Sterling, at the beginning of this year, I believe, um, actually resigned his position as a state employee and was rehired <laughs> by the Secretary of State's office as a consultant. His salary jumped from, what, 140? I don't know what that first figure was, but it jumped considerably to $200,000 as a consultant. The Secretary of State's office says, fine, except we no longer pay benefits, which are considerable. A benefits package costs a, a lot of money as well. Should we be, you know, when this happens in other branches of state government, it's usually a pretty big story, Greg. Yeah, it is. And, and when um, when this happened under Governor Deal's administration with, with, with a lot of his 
former employees going out to be consultants and then getting hired back to do um, state work. We, we reported on that too. This is this is this is just elemental watchdog journalism. Um, it doesn't have an out uh, bearing on the outcome of the election. It shouldn't shouldn't mean that we shouldn't trust the state elections officials when they say there's no widespread fraud. Um, but it does it does point to um, something that that watchdog groups have have, have raised questions about, which is uh, why not just keep someone like Gabe Sterling um, on the payroll? Uh, the Se- Secretary of State's office actually pitched it as some of a cost cutting move because. Those um, those those benefits amounted to something like 60% of the overall uh, payments that they they have to pay out. Um, but still, um, it is it is fodder for for transparency advocates to question why um, why there wasn't more transparency involved with this move. Yeah, and Mayor Ingram, I do think to the it, at least to a little extent. Uh, the people who have championed Gabe Sterling's outspokenness during the election process. Um, are now going to have to look at him slightly differently. Do you think that's a fair observation? You know, I I think my mom always says, don't let your good be evil spoken of, right? And so, you know, as as you are making, being vocal and advocating for what was right, you know, during, during the election and the recount, I mean, I think this calls into question some things, right? Um, I'm not going to, I don't know the details of it to really, you know, to say definitively one way or the other, but I, I do think it puts a cloud on um, a reputation that he had started to build of being a Republican who was actually focused on doing what the process required and, and being out there and doing what's right. All right. Um, I want to turn a page uh, and and take a different direction for the last few minutes of the show today. Um We're approaching the end of the year. Tomorrow, of course, New Year's Eve. And by the way, tomorrow we're doing a show with faith leaders, some of the most significant faith leaders in the state, talking about how they have helped their congregations through this terribly difficult year where they're finding hope and inspiration in their own lives. And with that in mind, um, I want to talk about small comforts for a minute in these hard times. Mayor Ingram, you told us before the show that one of your comforts is prayer, and one prayer in particular. Do you mind sharing just a little about what that means to you and what prayer we're talking about? Yes. So, um, you know, critically important for me and being grounded and just continuing to be focused on on my purpose and why I'm in the role that I am in is to pray. Um, and, And one that I actually have on my desk here at the City Hall and at home, and I just keep visible, is the serenity prayer. Um, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Um, because, you know, being in these roles, um, it, it, I tell people, you know, people are very fickle in our line of business, business of politics. And you have people who like you one minute and not the next. Um, <laughs> it could be for some, it, it could even be a second, right? Um, and so if, if I were driven by that and what people were saying and thinking and all of that, I would be, you know, lose, I would be very unstable. Um, and so I find my stability um, in prayer and, and peace and, and just asking, you know, to be led and to be guided to do what I'm purposed and called to do in this role um, to make sure that we're improving the quality of life of the people. Cause it's really not about me. It's about people. I, 
I have to say very quickly, um, your choice moves me a lot. That was my father's favorite prayer. Mm. He recited that prayer almost daily. Chuck Evstration, you said before the show, when I asked you all if you'd be willing to talk about this, that prayer has been very important to you in, in these hard times, too. With my Christian faith, I think reading the scriptures and um, and really seeing uh, how it's important that we follow Christ's example in our daily lives has been very powerful to me. And I, I know that uh, as we're face, looking at a new year, uh, it's a New Year's resolution for many to read the New Testament in the new year. And, and uh, I think about the Sermon on the Mount, reading about uh, Christ's example has really been incredibly beneficial to me, not only in difficult times like these, but just in my daily life uh, every year. But I will say this, particularly now, uh, as we're all uh, going through difficulties, as um, as we're struggling, our friends, family members, neighbors are, are going through this difficult pandemic and everything else that's, that's uh, going on, I think that reliance on Scripture is incredibly important. And uh, so thank, thank you for, for asking about that, Bill. What, what is it about the Sermon on the Mount that matters so much to you, especially right now? Christ's embodiment of, uh, what, um, of uh, what we all should be and we can aspire to be, I think, is incredibly important. And uh, the Lord's Prayer uh, allows us to have comfort, I think, and uh, gives us something that uh, we can uh, articulate as to, uh, as to what we believe. And uh, so that's uh, the the Beatitudes and, and the Lord's Prayer. I think are um, uh, incredibly powerful, and uh, and I and I would just encourage uh, listeners that maybe haven't read it in a while to uh, go back and take a look or or uh, pull it up on the internet. I, I think it's uh, very helpful in these difficult times. Thank you for that, Greg. I asked you that question too. Yeah, boy, I wish my answer was as moving as theirs, uh, but it is our, we got a new dog. Uh, we got a puppy for the first time ever in our family just uh, a couple weeks ago, and late, there's been a lot of late nights, a lot of, I had a couple of post-midnight stories just in the last week. Um, there's been a nonstop torrent of news, um, and, you know, just being able to hang out with little Charlie and watch my kids delight in having something that they're responsible for. They've been walking in, they've been... They've been making sure that he's fed and watered. I, that, that was our deal in our family. And so watching them take that responsibility and just falling in love with this new member of our family has been a, a, a pure comfort for us. Um, I, I don't think you should diminish the, the value of what you just said. I mean, I get it. You know, praying to God is a big deal. But, <laughs> uh, uh, but that's the whole point of what we're going to be doing in the weeks and months ahead. Talking about the small comforts, the things that we— we turn to when we're feeling down about such hard times. And having a new dog seems to me to be a pretty special thing, Greg Bluestein. Don't apologize for it at all. Um, all right. Thank all three of you for sharing those personal thoughts with us on Political Rewind. Um, Mayor Dina Holiday Ingram, Representative Chuck F. Stration, and Greg Bluestein. I, I really enjoyed talking with all three of you today. I wish you all a much better new year 2021 than the difficult times we've experienced this year and look forward to having you all back in the year ahead. We're back tomorrow. As I said, we are going to turn away from the day-to-day -day politics to talk to faith leaders about how they sustain themselves and their congregations in these times as they look to 2021. Until then, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care, stay healthy, wear your mask, 
and get out and cast a ballot. See you all tomorrow.